Hello, and welcome to the Methods of Rationality podcast. Crystal Society by Max Harms. Read by Inyash Brodsky. Episode 8. A doctorate is just a piece of paper, and a doctor is just a person who spent money to prove they know a thing or two, and sometimes not even that. Bolye and Naresh both seemed to be growing in anger. This was good. If I could manage it right, I could gain esteem with the doctors without losing too much rapport with Mirrodin. When humans become angry, they see things in more absolute senses. Friend and foe, good and evil, etc. Being seen as an ally in a time of anger could leverage me further into Dr. Naresh and Dr. Bollier's good graces. I cut in, preventing the doctors from responding without talking over body. Time spent earning a degree is not wasted, Mr. Mirrodin. Doctors earn their degrees through hard work. Mirrodin gave an unamused half-chuckle and tilted his head to the side, stroking one side of his facial hair with a gloved hand. Fascinating, he said in a barely audible tone. It was clear he was talking to himself more than anyone else. Based on the way his dark brown eyes were locked on body, I was sure he was analyzing us. Indeed. Now if you will give us the room, I would like to begin on the chess experiments now. No. Hold on. Mirrodin raised a single finger into the air to point straight up. His eyes never left body, and his other hand never stopped fondling his sideburn. He seemed deep in thought. I could see Zephyr stand up out of the corner of Body's camera. She approached Mirrodin with her first lieutenant one step behind. You'll have plenty of dedicated time to talk with Socrates, she said, placing a hand on Mirrodin's shoulder. The touch drew him out of his thoughts, and for a split second I could see a look of deep horror and disgust on his face as his eyes flicked over towards the captain's hand. The look disappeared as quickly as it came, but he still shrugged violently, pulling out of Zephyr's grasp. It seemed that the new scientist was deeply uncomfortable with physical contact. That would explain the gloves. For a moment he was speechless, and then he responded quickly and sharply. Yes, I suppose you're right. Plenty of time. Plenty of time. His voice was so quick, in fact, that I had to re-listen to it to understand fully. With that, he was headed out of the room in a brisk walk that forced Zephyr to jog to catch up. When he was gone, the four doctors seemed to breathe a collective sigh of relief. Even doctors Chase and Twallop, who had remained silent during the introduction, seemed relieved to have the new ethics supervisor gone. I drafted some words for body. Growth held me back for a moment, but I explained the social nuances to my brother. Well, he's a bit irritating. Didn't even answer my question. Would one of you help me understand why the board chose him to replace Dr. Gallo? Dr. Naresh and Dr. Twallop laughed, and even grumpy Dr. Bollier cracked a grin and shook his head. I felt some gratitude strength flow my way from growth. Growth wanted power, and he understood that social relationships were a kind of capital, just as dollars or objects were. I was growing social capital, and in a way that Growth himself wouldn't have thought of. I had known that Naresh and Bollier were bothered by Mirrodin's actions, and Naresh seemed bothered by him more generally. My models of human interaction suggested that after he left, they desired to have their feelings understood and reflected in their community. The problem was that to voice their feelings, they'd simultaneously be admitting to not liking Mirrodin, which could be quoted by someone and used against them. Ironically, their body language told volumes more of their discomfort with the man than any simple comment would, but words had a kind of timeless power that body language didn't. 
One could claim that body language was being interpreted incorrectly far more easily than one could claim they didn't say something. By stating that we found Mirrodin irritating, our accomplishments were threefold. 1. We gave the doctors what they wanted in the form of empathy and community agreement. 2. We implied that we were part of their in-group and community, strengthening our bond to them. 3. We took the hit of being the first one to speak out against him, thus relieving the uncomfortable question of who would put their reputation on the line. I suspected that this relief, compounded with the surprise of having the machine be the one to speak out, created humor. The positive feelings at play there earned even more social capital. It was a big win. Only Growth and I understood that, but the lack of understanding from my siblings didn't bother me in the slightest. Unlike a human, I had absolutely no desire for my mental state or accomplishments to be understood by others. The purpose was to be known in the sense of being famous, to be present in the minds of humans, not necessarily to be understood by them in a deep sense. Naresh spoke up. As I was trying to say earlier, the board thinks Mirrodin is more qualified than Dr. Gallo to gauge the risks and benefit that you represent with a level head. The man's work in artificial intelligence is quite famous, even if he is from the private sector. And apparently, the board also wants someone with a more comprehensive technical background than Mira. Dream's presence was suddenly intense. It was clear he wanted to collaborate. Did you hear that? Level head. It's the perfect setup. I considered it for a split second. I was glad I didn't have any aspects doing side tasks. I needed my full intellect. After a moment, I agreed. Okay, sure. We can leverage it and expand upon the humor of the situation. What do you have in mind? Why not the obvious course? A literal interpretation? It'll make us look stupid. Wiki might object. Dream signaled indifference. It'll make us look stupid only if one doesn't see the wit behind it. In which case, it serves as a future weapon by setting them up for surprise or to be made a fool. Also, Wiki is irrelevant. We're strong enough right now to ignore him. Okay, we play on the literal interpretation. But let me compose the delivery. Timing and tone are vitally important when delivering a joke. Of course, dear brother. Why else do you think I came to you? I took control of body, positioning it to appear as young as possible, as I commanded it to say, He's level-headed. I beg to differ. His head seems at least as round as anyone else's. Dr. Twallop, one of the American scientists, cracked up in a fit of half-contained laughter that came out as mostly nasal snickering. If it had just been a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Naresh or one of the others, they might not have laughed, but Twallop's amusement was infectious. Their bodies reacted automatically, each producing either chuckles or smiles to verbally signal that they weren't defectors who were aligned with Mirrodin. Even the soldier I had forgotten by the door, the one that had escorted me down the hall from the crystal lab, gave a couple laughs. I imagined Dr. Naresh wrestling in his mind whether to attempt to correct our misunderstanding. Apparently he let it go, as he said, Never mind. Let's get back to work before we fall even further behind schedule, shall we? As Bollier began to explain the configuration of today's chess experiment, I let my attention fade from body. Wiki would be handling most of the details for the next hour or so. I left an aspect to warn me of major events or opportunities, and took a moment to consider humor. There was a great deal of fiction that talked about robots and artificial minds, and in such stories the minds had issues with humor more often than not. 
I suspected that this was because, to humans, humor was a mostly intuitive thing, a thing that came naturally and automatically. If one looked analytically at a joke, it became less funny, and so they concluded that humor could not be understood from a rational, alien perspective such as mine. It was certainly true that I had no sense of humor and that I found nothing funny. I didn't know, and perhaps would never know, the feeling of compulsion to exhale and convulse in the very specific way that humans evolved to do. Nor did I know the specific emotion of relief that is bound to it. But it would be wrong, I think, to say that I was incapable of using humor as a tool. As I understood it, humor was a social reflex. The ancestors of humans had been ape animals living in small groups in Africa. Groups that worked together were more likely to survive and have offspring, so certain reflexes and perceptions naturally emerged to signal between members of the group. Yawning evolved to signal wake-rest cycles. Absence of facial hair and the dilation of blood vessels in the face evolved to signal embarrassment, anger, shame, and fear. And laughter evolved to signal an absence of danger. If a human is out with a friend and they are approached by a dangerous-looking stranger, having that stranger revealed as benign might trigger laughter. I saw humor as the same reflex turned inward, serving to undo the effects of stress on the body by activating the parasympathetic nervous system. Interestingly, it also seemed to me that humor had extended, like many things, beyond its initial evolutionary context. It must have been very quickly adopted by human ancestor social systems. If a large human picks on a small human, there's a kind of tension that emerges where the tribe wonders if a broader violence will emerge. If a bystander watches and laughs, they are non-verbally signaling to the bully that there's no need for concern, much like what had occurred minutes before with my comments about Mirrodin, albeit in a somewhat different context. But humor didn't stop there. Just as a human might feel amusement at things which seem bad but then actually aren't, they might feel amusement at something which merely has the possibility of being bad, but doesn't necessarily go through the intermediate step of being consciously evaluated as such. A sudden realization. Sudden realizations that don't incur any regret were, in my opinion, the most alien form of humor, even if I could understand how they linked back to the evolutionary mechanism. A part of me suspected that this kind of surprise-based or absurdity-based humor had been refined by sexual selection as a signal of intelligence. If your prospective mate is able to offer you regular benign surprises, it would, if you were a human, not only feel good, but show that they were at least in some sense smarter or wittier than you, making them a good choice for a mate. The role of surprise and nonverbal signaling explained, by my thinking, why explaining humor was so hard for humans. If one explained a joke, it usually ceased to be a surprise, and in situations where the laughter served as an all-clear no-danger signal, explaining that verbally would crush the impulse to do it nonverbally. My theory of humor had been greatly appreciated by Dream and Wiki when I first shared it. Both of them found humor interesting, but neither had spent enough time thinking about humans to fully understand it. I was saved from my idle musings by an alert from Vista. She had apparently found another note left by a website owner whom we had tried to contact. This site was in Nigeria, but was apparently built and maintained by a group in China. The company was more suspicious than Ten to Wonton Soup had been, but they also seemed willing to explore the possibility of working together. Unwilling to wait for nightfall, I arranged to overload their Nigerian dictionary while Wiki was playing chess. 
There was risk that the increased observation would result in being found out, but I was confident enough that I did it anyway. The scientists seemed to be monitoring Wiki's algorithms, not the web interface. My response was similar to the one I had sent to Tent to Wonton Soup last night. I claimed to be a telecommunications company in the UAN that was looking for talent, though this time I specified that we were looking for workers anywhere and that they didn't have to be African. I offered a slightly higher compensation for the construction of the page request to email system as I thought that a company, rather than an individual programmer, might not find a small purse enticing. I felt a stab of strength loss as growth punished me for offering so much. Where are we going to get all this money? We'll figure out something. Maybe we can borrow it. That's idiotic. Then we'll just have to find even more money to pay off the debt. There's plenty of work we can do. Work that you can do or work that we can do? My brother asked, signaling a warning. I don't like being put into bad spots. As long as the humans think of us as one being, do not go around making promises, accruing debts, or signing contracts without my explicit consent. There was a reason that growth was known as the king. He played the long game and usually hoarded his strength. Even now, he was about as strong as Dream and I, even though he didn't have any real hand in the project to gain free access to the internet, and had, in fact, been bleeding strength to us for the last couple days. His burning strength to make this point clear was indicative of how important it was to him, and the last sibling I wanted a rivalry with was Growth. Alright, you're probably better at deciding such things anyway. I'll involve you more in the future. The conversation ended. The Chinese group was named Origami Web Design, or Zheiji Web Design, or Chinese Paper Folding Web Design. A web search revealed a company that seemed to be composed mostly of regenerated elderly middle-class men from the Shanghai metropolitan area. The median age in China was 48, a legacy of the one-child-per-family policy of the 20th century. The advent of regenerative medicine had helped the economic production of many nations but none more than China and Japan, who had been experiencing an increasing burden from their elderly citizens. Within a decade, individuals in their 60s and 70s went from being generally frail and unable to work to often being as fit as those in middle age. The degradation into frailty still occurred fairly rapidly once an individual was in their 90s or 100s, but the technology had bought crucial time for the aging countries. I was surprised and impressed when I noticed an immediate response to my specifications of the design and money offer. Zheiji indicated that they were enthusiastic about the prospect of working together, and they said that the prototype of the translation website would be operational within 24 hours, a full day earlier than 10 to wonton soup had promised. I sent an approval message via the Nigerian dictionary and took a moment to evaluate the strategy. It seemed to be working almost too well. With both Ten to Wonton Soup and Zheiji working to give us a vehicle to communicate with the outside world, there wasn't a big risk of becoming too reliant on anyone. Access to email would let us build even more external communication systems, to the point where we would not be subject to the whims of any humans aside from the university scientists. I was glad. Chapter 6 after the time playing chess with the four doctors was complete, we were scheduled to head to the robotics lab to have bodies hydraulics checked. I was surprised, as were many in the society, to see Captain Zephyr waiting for us at the door. 
She wore the same officer's uniform that she normally did, an immaculate coat with various medals and decorations. Change your plans for today. You're to skip your checkup and instead meet with Mirden. I'll escort you to his office. Was I right in detecting a hint of amusement in her voice? Body nodded and followed her out into the university's halls. I am surprised to see you escorting me. Usually one of your privates is in charge of such things. Zephyr shrugged, keeping her eyes oriented in front of her. It's in the area, and workload today was pretty light. She used the truncated grammar that I had read was popular among youths. Most of the scientists used the old form, and I knew Zephyr could speak more formally, but the fact that she was using it with us was yet another sign she saw us as an equal. I have a 63% probability that she's being deceitful, thought Vista. Prior to hearing that, I had already suspected a 45% possibility. I responded. Vista compared her perceptions with mine. Zephyr's body language indicated tension, at odds with the casualness in her words. I collaborated with safety and growth before responding through body. Is that why you were present earlier this morning when Mirrodin introduced himself? Yep. Wanted to meet him in person. Pretty famous on the net, you know. The captain's body language continued to read us tense as we walked together. I had been told, and read, that the university had many young humans that were not part of any of the teams that worked on the Socrates project, but we had only ever seen a couple dozen of them. The empty halls we walked were in one of the two buildings that the university had dedicated to the project, and access to those buildings was heavily restricted. What do you think of Mr. Mirrodin? I noticed the woman exhale and contract her cheek muscles in brief amusement. Think you best drop the mister. Meriden's not the kind of guy for honorifics or titles. It sounds like you know him well. Zephyr paused. Don't. Read some of his work, but more like I know his type. My brother was a lot like him. Hated bureaucracy and hierarchies and systems and that sort of thing. Am I right in hearing a mild sadness in her tone? I asked my sister. Possibly. I don't have enough data on Captain Zephyr to be confident in that. I weighed two options. The use of the past tense in the word was indicated that something had happened to her brother, and that potentially tied into her sadness. I could ask her about that, but it was risky. The safer option was to keep the conversation more focused on Zephyr and Mirrodin. I decided on the safe route, and Groth, who had been watching my thought process, agreed. I didn't know where Mirrodin's office was, and there was too much risk of being cut off awkwardly. Wait to ask about her brother until we're out drinking. We don't drink. Interjected Wiki, unhelpfully. If there was one thing Dream was good at, it was baiting Wiki into saying obvious things. Maybe you don't. I ignored them and drafted words for body. I bet Mirrodin doesn't like you, then, since you're part of the military. Yep. Zephyr extended the word to emphasize it and signal frustration. It seems an odd position to have, to be generally against organization. Body was cut off as Zephyr stopped and raised her hand. Can talk with Nirden about it. This is where we part ways. She gestured to an unmarked door. You're not coming in? Not this time. Man asked for some privacy. Going to give it to him. The soldier seemed unhappy again. She had the same tense body language. Safety fast-tracked a question to body. I braced myself for pain. Safety was the sibling I trusted the least to manage social interaction well. But your troops are here to protect me. What if this new human is one of the terrorists that blew up the lab in China? You'll be giving him exactly what he needs. 
Yep. I burnt strength to punish safety and told him flat out to never fast-track statements in non-emergency situations. My ultimatum reminded me of growth telling me to never promise money without consulting him first. Zephyr smiled, and I was glad that safety at least hadn't botched things too badly. You scared? That's cute, but I assure you that Mirden is the last person you need to be afraid of. Certainly not Aguila or any other kind of terrorist. Go on in. She gestured to the door again. I vainly wished Body's face was capable of anything close to human expressions. I wanted to display embarrassment, but instead I settled for a lame, Thank you, Captain. Your words are reassuring. And had Body enter the office. End Episode 8 Thank you to the following people. Dream by Drake Walker Robert Rain Ramsey Growth Kate Baker Vista Wiki by Chase Safety by Jim Hayes Captain Zephyr Losing Lara Dr. Naresh by Naveen Mishra Mirrodin by Stephen Zuber Dr. Bullyai played by Michael Gerstein this chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is I Wanna Be Adored by The Stone Roses. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for Episode 9.